0: Hello and welcome to this latest podcast from the Herbert Smith Free Hills Pensions Team. This is the latest podcast in our series on pensions and ESG and today I'm delighted to be joined once again by Ashley Hamilton-Claxton who's Head of Responsible Investment at Royal London Asset Management. Ashley thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you Tim, thanks for having me.
0: I last interviewed Ashley a couple of years ago when we were discussing the new climate risk related requirements for uh, larger pension schemes and master trusts which uh, would we d- discussed just before they were due to come into force. The focus around ESG and climate risk has obviously only intensified since then and so we were keen to catch up with Ashley again to see how things have moved on since we last spoke and also to look ahead to the next wave of regulatory requirements that are coming down the tracks. So Ashley, as I say it's been a couple of years since we last spoke about kind of ESG, climate risks, and how that's affecting asset managers and and UK pension funds. So could you tell us a little bit about what's been keeping you busy in that time?
1: Absolutely. We are exceptionally busy. I would say the key things keeping us busy are regulatory change. So regulation is ramping up. Reputational risks around greenwashing is ramping up. Scrutiny on us by our clients by our board, by our executives, et cetera, internal audit and others is ramping up. And so what we've been seeing over the last of 18 months is often what I call the sort of teenage years of ESG. So we were kind of in our infancy for a long, long time. I've been in the industry for 15 years and it's sort of in the last two years that I think really we've kind of reached the sort of angst of the teenage years. So growing pains, boundary testing, you know, rule setting, rule breaking. I think it's all kind of part and parcel of what we're feeling in the sort of ESG and RI space at the moment. It's very, very exciting. Obviously, ESG and RI has become very commercial. It's become a requirement, as you said, of many of our pension clients and other clients. And so it's that difficult period of trying to get, get onto a really solid footing with lots and lots of change coming through the system. So yeah, so that's been happening. And then just the number of client queries we're getting, I would say, even in the last six months particularly, and I know we're going to talk about it later, about uh, climate change and net zero from our pension clients has basically just exploded in the last six months. So, yeah, lots of long, long days in, in the RI team.
0: Yeah, truly. Really, I like the analogy of ESG entering its teenage years. Um <laughs> yes. Maybe we'll come back to that later. Um, <laughs> one of the key issues we discussed last time and that always comes up in this context is is around data and, you know, how trustees can get access to good quality data, meaningful data around things like ESG and, and climate related risks. Uh, and I know you were doing a lot when we spoke last time to kind of enhance your offering in, in that space. So, so what steps have you taken at Arland to, to gather, produce and improve the quality of your own data? Uh, and how do you make that available to your clients?
1: It's data is such an interesting question. And I've been sort of having a few rants on LinkedIn about ESG data recently, which has kind of exploded in popularity. I don't know if I've struck a chord with my RI colleagues on my network, but data is really, really important. Um, We need to get data to our clients so that they can then make decisions. But we're also seeing this kind of thing in the industry where there's like this real focus on trying to measure everything. And it's not always clear to me that the clients know what they're measuring or why. They just want lots and lots of data. And I think that can have really challenging consequences. There's operational consequences, which is, you know, for us to cope with the volume of data requests, how we get data to the customers and clients in the right format, you know, on time, correct and for I checked and all of that. But but also just like, what are they going to do with it? And I think the other thing is I sit on the uh, LGPS Advisory Committee on Response testing and the LGPS schemes. Many of them are saying, you know, like they're they're not skilled up to consume the data Um, and they're often having to then pay consultants to to do all the data crunching and stuff for them. So it's kind of ballooned. I think in some ways it's justified, but I think the industry is still trying to get to grips with what are we actually trying to measure and is the data going to give us what we think it's going to give us? And I think fundamentally, and this is where I've kind of started ranting on LinkedIn, is that some of this stuff, sustainability, to me as a social scientist, completely biased, is unmeasurable. And there's certain things that we just feel like this sort of obsession with measurement isn't necessarily always a healthy thing. Of course, people challenge me and they you know, what doesn't get measured, doesn't get managed, et cetera. And I understand that. I think measurement is important. And data is important, but we have to make sure we don't kind of lose sight of the goal
0: often. Mm. Yeah, and I guess recognizing the limitations of of that measurement as well. Absolutely. Um, talking about measurement, the, the latest proposal is that schemes or larger schemes uh, will need to start assessing the extent to which their investment portfolios are aligned with the the. The goal set in the, the Paris Agreement back in 2015. Mm-hmm. And presumably, again, you'll, you'll very much be taking the lead on this for your clients in terms of doing the number crunching alongside the, the investment consultants. W- what's your current thinking on how, how you might go about that and what's going to be involved in in making those assessments?
1: It's really tricky. It's the number one number one question that we're trying to grapple with and many of our peers are. And I'll tell you today that we've not worked it out and no one else has worked it out. What we're trying to understand is this really delicate balancing act between our fiduciary duty to manage our customers' money as they intended for us to do so, get them the return that they're expecting and the risk profile that they're expecting, balance that the kind of uh, sort of systematic risk of climate change and whether and how that's going to impact asset values, good or bad, which is in itself extremely complex. And then this, this like societal sort of need that, you know, really, you know, we, we've hit a planetary boundary. We're overshooting a planetary boundary and it's sort of existential for, for for our economy and society to kind of solve this problem. So but we have these duties to these customers, these legal duties to our customers that we're, we're still beholden to. So it's trying to kind of find the way through the, this balancing act of the three pieces. So what are we doing? So we're just trying to talk to our clients about it. Lots of our clients have already proactively reached out to us and said, how can you move my portfolio to net zero? And so a lot of the practical conversations around that is, OK, well, we probably don't know exactly what a net zero portfolio looks like, first of all. We we have some data, but it depends on the asset class. So if it's in fixed income or some other assets, we have not very good data, but we can take an educated guess, maybe. And, and the, the other kind of more philosophical debate we're having with our clients is, do you want a net zero portfolio or do you want a net zero world? And and not all clients understand. So, I mean, a colleague in my office talks about the molecule, so the carbon molecule that's been emitted. You know, that molecule exists in the atmosphere. If I sell it out of my portfolio, it doesn't go anywhere. It's still in the bubble. <laughs> I just sold it to someone else. So, so really, philosophically, what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve net zero portfolios with like a 10 degree world? or are we really trying to work on the collective? And so trying to understand where our clients are on that, having those discussions, having discussions with fund managers about what data do we have? What's it telling us? What are the limitations? What are the small changes you can make in the small or big changes you can make in the funds? Like, you know, I might've talked about this last time, but, you know, we, we did some small switches of some of our Uh, sorry, fixed income assets out of gas distribution bonds into electric distribution bonds. We did that a few years ago based on kind of climate risk. And that was the right decision to take because spreads have widened since. And I think now uh, you're kind of starting to see more climate risk in those kind of assets. But it's kind of a lot of accumulation of small decisions coupled with some very big strategic decisions that need to come from our clients and asset owners, because until the asset owners start allocating capital or asking us We want to change our investment mandate with you to achieve these goals. It's very difficult for us legally from a fiduciary perspective to kind of take that action without our client's permission. So a long answer to the question. Lots is happening. We've not worked it out, but we're definitely trying
0: to. Yeah. And and that doesn't surprise me in many ways, because this is all evolving, isn't it? And it's, you know, everyone's trying to work out how to do this. You've mentioned the term net zero. A number of times, and uh, we hear a lot of talk about that. And and over the last few years, we've seen a lot of schemes announcing net zero targets. Could you just give a simple explanation of what (laughs) we mean when we talk about net zero or net zero target, and how meaningful do you think it is to talk about that?
1: Yeah, good question. And I'm probably not going to do a very good job of the answer, but I'll try. So again, if we go back to the bubble analogy, you know, we all live on the planet. We live in basically an atmospheric bubble. Um, getting to net zero means we cannot emit, emit any more carbon into the atmosphere than we can take out. That's what we need to mean to is getting, getting to kind of net zero. So it goes back to the point I made about net zero portfolios versus net zero world. And this is something I think we're quite passionate about at, at Royal London. I think there's a lot of talk of oh, I'm just going to have a net zero portfolio or a Paris aligned benchmark. Um, and that's great. We're super supportive of that. But we're really, really conscious that the reality is that does nothing to reduce carbon in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, excluding companies from the portfolio who are high emitters is quite a high profile thing that a lot of you know, clients and and other people in the market do. That is potentially a legitimate action. But again, it takes zero carbon out of the atmosphere. So I think we're trying to be quite nuanced about it. We're trying to really say what are the actions that we can take that could meaningfully reduce actual carbon emissions? That's really, really hard. And the other thing I I kind of have a bit of a rant on, on LinkedIn sometimes about is we need to acknowledge that the investment industry, particularly the asset management industry, is actually pretty far down the chain in terms of intermediaries in this whole process. And I think governments potentially, there's a risk that governments have really relied on the finance industry to fix the problem. And I really worry that that is an impossible task. Because we are really only one cogs in the chain. We can have influence, absolutely. We can direct, you know, significant flows of capital, but you need government action, you need company action, you need a mm. c- carbon price. There's lots of things that you need that investors, especially being asset managers who take essentially take instructions from our clients, really cannot do unless a lot of the other actors in the ecosystem are working towards the same goal.
0: Mm. And just kind of I guess picking up on that. We've obviously seen a lot of regulatory change, a lot of initiatives action over the last few years, particularly in the run up to COP26 as well last year. But just kind of looking forward, what are the biggest developments you see kind of coming down the tracks? And if there was one thing you could improve in this space, and you may have hinted at it already, but, but if there's one thing you could improve, what, what would that be?
1: Uh, so what's coming? I, I I don't have a very rosy picture over the next 18 months. So going back to my teenage years example, um We're going to be in the teenage years for a while still. I think for the next 18 months or longer, we're still going to see more boundary testing. We're going to see more regulation. I think we'll see more investigations of greenwashing. And so I'm not not that hopeful for the next 18 months. I think it's going to be hard going for the next 18 months. What would I change? I think that there's a real danger and you guys will be aware of this of the regulation just going all over the place and not being coordinated globally and almost regulation for regulation's sake um, and also regulation that doesn't actually benefit the end customer so you know um, the EU regulation SFDR or sustainable finance disclosures regulation it's a really monstrous piece of regulation Um, it's really hard to get your head around as an asset manager and it's very vague and but even that regulation which is trying to bring better disclosures to customers hasn't achieved that goal because we have to categorize fund, some of our european funds as article 8 or article 9 and no customer on the street no pension saver knows what on earth an article 8 fund is and there's lots of rules about how you can categorize article 8 and that regulation is cost asset managers millions it, in terms of people's time, technology build, data costs, everything else, disclosure costs, lawyers fees. Um, it, it's cost a lot to implement, and I'm not sure that actually it's helped our customers, which I think is a shame. And I think there's a real risk that um, we kind of go down this rabbit hole of regulation without seeing the bigger picture With uh, in terms of, um, yeah, what are we really trying to achieve, I suppose, as an industry. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think your point—the point you've made several times about not just looking at individual portfolios, but thinking about it globally in terms of what does net zero mean and how do we achieve that—is really, really important as well. Just one final thing before we we wrap up. Just wonder for for those trustees out there that are still kind of grappling with this—I'm sure many of them are—but but kind of still grappling with how to really get to grips with, you know, implementing an effective ESG risk management strategy for their scheme. Do you, do you have any practical tips for them in terms of just things you've you've, you've learned and, and you've learned working with other trustee boards over the last few years?
1: Yeah, I would say reach out to your asset managers, ask them to come in and do an education session for you. It doesn't have to be a sales pitch. You know, it can just be um, really this is what's happening in the market. We've done that recently for a large client of ours to their uh, of trustees, I suppose, um, key decision makers. Um, So that's, I think, really helpful. Uh, The tip that I always say for trustees, if you're selecting funds in this space, just be really wary of fund names, because they're not always that what the name of the fund isn't always what the fund's doing internally. And that's what some of the regulations trying to fix. and, And I think we'll get there eventually. But just be wary of fund names, really look under the bonnet, see what it is that you're buying. Um, what it's doing. Is it meeting your intentions as trustee and work with people that you trust? I think with asset managers that, you know, have been doing this a long time that have, you know, grappled with these issues for a long time. And I think if you if you work with people that you trust that have um, longevity in this space to probably get some some good advice from them. And then if you can afford it, get get a little bit of external advice. I don't normally say that, to be honest, because I know a lot of trustees struggle, but I think with the ESG space, what we found, I know, for the LGPS schemes is they are having to go to get advice because them managing the complexity of the data requests and regulations is just really, really difficult. Um, and so we kind of feel their pain. So those would be my top
0: tips. Yeah, it's really useful. Thank you. And thank you for taking time to, to talk to me today. Really great just to kind of catch up and and get your insights into what what's going on in this space be interesting maybe to catch up again in a few years time when when potentially yeah. ESG is entering adulthood. The adulthood. Uh, That'd yeah. be wonderful <laughs>
1: wouldn't it? We
0: can kind of tra- track it through its stages of development let's see um, but for the time being uh, we'll see how it endures its its teenage years uh, but yeah. thank you for joining me and uh, thank you to everyone that, that's taken the time to listen. Uh, as I said this is the latest podcast in our series on on pensions and ESG. Uh, if you'd like to receive future episodes, then subscribe to our UK Pensions blog and you'll also find uh, our previous episodes are hosted there. Great. Well, thanks for listening and, and thanks, Ashley, for joining me.
1: Thank you, Tim.